You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm joined on the line by a very special guest. We have Anthony Horowitz here with us, who's just put out the latest in the Daniel Hawthorne series of mysteries featuring Daniel Hawthorne and himself as the sidekick. And we've just completed our tour through Magpie Murders, one of his previous mysteries. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. There were no stumbles in the setting up of this interview, Anthony. Welcome. You are the complete pro, Felix. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Now, across your metafictions, you've explored a variety of regular relationships in the literary world, dialed up to 11, book launches, writers' festivals, publishing oversight, the role of the editor. Do you ever have to make phone calls apologizing in advance to the equivalent people in your own life when these books come out? (laughs) No, I'm happy to say that I've had no complaints. Many of my publishers, editors, family, friends, or anybody else who happens to find themselves in my books. Uh, I think they recognize these entertainments. I'm not out to do any point scoring. I'm not out to say anything unpleasant about anybody. Um, and basically, I have a very benign view of life, and like most of the people that I'm surrounded by, so what could I possibly put in my books that would upset them? Yeah, I guess the thing I wanted to get into in Metafiction is that you've had a, a really interesting relationship with that. That We're now five books deep into uh, a series of crime and metafiction mysteries through uh, Susan Ryland, Daniel Hawthorne, and you also have an enormous back catalogue going all the way back and further than Midsummer Murders as well. So- Having worked in the genre for so long, whose works do you think most of uh, when you go to plan out metafiction? And uh, I guess, how do you avoid being cynical having worked in the genre for as long as you have? Well, I can answer the second question more easily than the first. I avoid being cynical because I love the genre. I love crime fiction. I love murder mysteries. I think they have a real role to play, particularly in a world which is so uncertain. You know, we've just been through two years of lockdown and COVID. Uh, the political scene, both in America and certainly in the United Kingdom, is very, um, what's the word for it? It's very, you know, who do you trust? Who do you listen to? What do you believe? I think one of the joys of murder mystery is, is it's one of the very few genres of fiction that is entirely about the truth, where you get to the end of a, of a book, um, a whodunit, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, you know who the killer was, the world somehow is healed, you come away with a sense of comfort, everything is going to be all right, which is why there's been such a spike in these books over the last two years. So cynical, never, not me. Now, what was the first part of your question? What do I think about when I'm thinking about metaphysics? Well, the answer to that, I guess, begins with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of uh, Sherlock Holmes. The inspiration for Magpie Murders, which was the first of the two novels starring Atticus Punt and Susan Ryland, Doyle is an interesting writer. He's a very, very great writer. You know I have actually written two books in the Sherlock Mm. Holmes world. I know his work very, very well. Uh, And what I think is fascinating about him is that he created this extraordinary character, two extraordinary characters, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. He more or less invented the modern crime novel, but he had a dislike of Sherlock Holmes almost from the beginning. He looked down on him. He thought it was beneath him to be writing, you know, these popular stories about a detective solving crimes. And what he wanted was to be known for his... A romantic historical novels such as, for example, The White Company and Michael Clark. Now, I wonder how many of your listeners or you have, have even heard of these books, let alone read them. They're not very good, to be honest with you. So what he does is he takes Sherlock Holmes and after just a few short stories, throws him off the right and back falls, gets rid of him so he can concentrate on his more serious work. And that's always fascinating me, the idea of the author who has a disdain for his main character. Now, another example of that, incidentally, Someone else who is very close to me, 
Ian Fleming and James Bond. Mm. He thought of James Bond as being sort of a children's book, sort of, you know, sort of bang, bang, sort of nonsense and, um, and, and, and had a certain disdain for it, or even though it made him a fortune and made him world famous. So again, you get the same thing of the, of the author who decries Agatha Christie once spoke out about Hercule Poirot, calling him this sort of stupid, vain, yeah. pompous, egotistical, whatever. I find that relationship really interesting. And that was my inspiration, certainly for the Magpie Murders. Uh, and its sequel. Well, the other thing I wanted to touch on then is that talking of the relationship between an author and a character, what is that relationship like when the character is yourself? Because in the Hawthorne novels, you cast yourself in the sidekick role, as I mentioned, and the sidekick is often a character that's more junior, less intelligent, but arguably more the hero and more relatable. You know, how does it feel writing yourself in that position? Well, that's the fun of it, because you see, the, when I came to write the series that began with the word is murder and the sentence is death and now a line to kill, my aim was to try and do something with the whodunit that had never been done before. And I began with the thought that the writer is the cleverest person in the picture, because before the murder's even been committed, the writer knows who's going to die, and the writer knows where the clues are going to be. He knows or she knows whether whether how the solution is going to form itself. In other words, the writer is way ahead of a detective who hasn't even been born yet, quite possibly. So by taking myself off the mountain and putting myself into the book as the sort of Watson figure, the narrator, I did exactly what you just said. I went from being the cleverest person to being the most stupid person. Now I'm five steps behind Daniel Hawthorne. Uh, if he doesn't solve the crime, I won't even have a book to write about. I don't really know what to describe because I don't know what the clues are. I don't know anything about the suspects. I am ignorant and I am sort of stupid. Yeah. And, and that, however, allows me to write about whodunits in a completely new and refreshing way. And I should say that when I had this idea and I pitched it to my publishers in England, they were quite nervous about, you know, is this going to be an opportunity to, to go on an ego trip? Is it going to make, <laughs> you know, am I going to sit there and tell people how many books I've sold and how successful I am and, you know, how much better a writer I am than other writers or whatever. And in fact, that was never my intention. I was always going to be the sidekick. I am not the central character in the book. I am just the narrator. And as you put it so correctly, I am the most stupid person in the book. <laughs> well, I guess the thing I wanted to touch on then is that your voice as an author is really tangible in A Line to Kill, both because you're the character there, but also because there are a lot of points I could practically feel your hand turning my neck to clues in a way that was almost taunting, a very kind of crime fiction staple. Do you have to feel, you know, you were mentioning the kind of ego trip there, do you have to feel at least a little bit smug while you're putting the puzzles together to get the mystery balance right in crime fiction? I hope I never feel smug. I mean, it does matter to me that people shouldn't be able to guess my books. I mean, I spend an awful lot of time thinking up clues that will hopefully sit there in plain sight, but which won't give the game away. And I have to say that I cheat a little bit because once I've finished the first draft, I show it to my wife, who is super smart, and to my kids, who are also pretty bright. And if they guess who did it, I then very, very quickly make adjustments to make sure that the same mistake doesn't happen when the book is published. But no, I mean, it's a, it's a case of just, you know, wanting to really write not just who done it, but also to have the opportunity to write about writing. I think there are so many interesting questions to ask about who done it. So I'll give you one, for example. Why is it that murder is by and large horrible. If a man kills his wife, it is an act of extreme violence and unpleasantness. If we see a murder or hear about a murder in the street, we tend to be either nervous or, or, or disgusted. You know, we don't relish it. But when we come to whodunits and murder mysteries, the, the pages can be littered with bodies and with blood and, and such, and we just smile. It becomes entertainment. Why is that? Why is there a crossing over point from fiction into reality and back again where things change so much? These are sort of questions I wanted to ask, and these books gave me the opportunity to do just that. Yeah, I think the other thing that kind of interests me there as a metafictional question is that with murder being so horrible in the real world, so often readers 
just beg, you know, oh, I wanted, I wanted to understand the culprit more, but sometimes murderers can just be monsters. And that's a really weird relationship that crime fiction audiences have with that role in their stories. Well, I think in modern life, all murderers are monsters to a certain extent, because taking a human life is about the most monstrous thing that you can do. Uh, but let's not forget that the majority of murders are not planned. I mean, the majority of real life murders happen in a fit of anger or intoxication, uh, where somebody picks up a hammer or a glass bottle and, and, and attacks somebody else and never thinks about it, which is why, incidentally, the vast majority of modern murders are very rapidly solved because blood splatter, forensics, fingerprints, um, CCTV cameras in every single street, um, all the sort of, you know, the modern world, all the apparatus of the modern world is against the murderer and makes it more likely that the murderer will be caught. Now, the idea that somebody sits down like in an Agatha Christie book and spends several months working out that if they disguise themselves as the waiter and slip up the back stairs and have some cyanide in their left-hand pocket and frame the guy who's sitting opposite the person they want to kill, etc., etc., they'll get away with it. That's actually complete nonsense. Yeah, anyone who's planned anything knows that nothing survives contact with the enemy. That's right, but that is the joy of it for writing these books for me because I am a modern person in a modern world and I'm suddenly in these books where the sort of Daniel Hawthorne is something of a Christie-esque character or a Sherlock Holmesian character in the sort of deductions he makes and the clues that he discovers. And I quite like that sort of mix and match between the real world and the fake world. In fact, if you read... um. Magpie Murders, the first book, I, uh, I, a metafiction book that I wrote, some of the characters in it exist. I met just last week, I was in Torquay, I was at Agatha Christie's house, and I met her grandson, Matthew Pritchard. If you read Magpie Murders, one of the characters has lunch with Matthew Pritchard in a real restaurant in London. And so you've got to think of, you know, the fourth wall between fiction and reality is really getting a, a hammering in my books. While we were talking about Magpie Murders, one of the guests that we had on was talking about how so often modern crime fiction is trying to excise modern conveniences. And that's something that you were touching on there. And one of the ways that you've excised a bit, but not all of modern convenience in this book is by setting it on an island, one of the classic murder mystery locations. And there's kind of an interesting uh, detail to me in how we've been looking at Hawthorne's past the whole way through the series with just bits and pieces, and it feels like we're building to something. But there was a tangible parallel to me in the separation from the island to the mainland and from Hawthorne to the rest of the cast. The idea that the island is this closed off place uh, of mystery and intrigue and Hawthorne's inner self, perhaps, you know, is closed off. What do you get by putting the emotionally isolated detective character in a physically isolated serial murder incident when so often classic island mysteries like And Then There Were None have no detective character? I think that I like very much the idea of a detective as the outsider. Uh, I think that's what, make, what's make, what makes Poirot and Sherlock Holmes such interesting characters, is that they come from outside. They have very little contact with humanity in some ways. Look at Poirot, for example, who is unmarried, who never seems to have any romance, who has only one or two very close friends. I mean, there's Jap and there's Hastings, who comes into a community, whether it's an island, in many of the books, actually, even under the sun, takes place, I think, on Bear Island. And um, and then there were none, of course, doesn't have a detective at all. But, but, but um, Poirot himself often comes into closed communities his job is to resolve the problems there, who killed who, what else is happening that people are lying about, and then to leave and everything is left intact behind him. Now that, of course, has its perfect physicality in a location like Alderney, where both Hawthorne and, for that matter, myself, are 
total outsiders. And at the moment we're on the island, we are, as it were, separated and completely um, divorced from our own lives, from our own families. I think I mentioned when I speak to my wife once on the phone, but that's about it. I am really on my own with Hawthorne. And of course, Alderney is home to Hawthorne's nemesis, a man by the name of Derek Abbott, who has got some connection with what happened to him when he was a child. So Alderney is, if you like, a trap. It's somewhere that both of us feel uncomfortable in. And add to that that there is a murderer somewhere on the island. And you have a classic locked room set up, effectively, because an island is a locked room. So it did work very well as both a physical location and as a metaphysical location, you know, in, in regard to who we are and, and, and how we think and feel. Yeah, the thing that you poked at there that I was really excited by uh, when we began this stretch of metafiction, because we've been doing a series on this show looking at different metafictional texts and the way that we relate to them and the way that they relate to writing, reading, and beyond, and that is discomfort as a narrative tool. You know, obviously, murder, as we touched on, is discomforting, but we kind of treat it as a fun thing in murder mystery. But what do you see the value is in throwing your readers to the, you know, the whim of the waves, making things a little turbulent for them? Well, I'm trying not to do that in a strange way. I mean, I don't think metafiction should be disorienting. And also, I think there's a danger that if you're not careful with metafiction, you can actually undermine yourself. Because if you tell everybody, hey, this is just a story made up by Anthony Horowitz, none of this is true. Uh, and that he's actually questioning the reality of what is happening as the book goes on. You would, I think, have an uncomfortable read, and that is the exact opposite of what I want. I want my books to be completely immersive. So I think you have to be careful and, and not think that when I take Hawthorne and myself to Alderney, I'm doing something quite deliberate uh, to, to sort of, as it were, undermine the whole sort of structure and foundation of a murder mystery. I chose Alderney because I had been there three years ago and thought it was a fantastic location for a murder mystery with all its main, with all its fortresses, the caves, the tunnels, the secret passages, the coves and the, the and, and, and the beaches and the mountains and all the rest of it. It was a, it's an extraordinary location for it. I liked very much the fact that it was a locked room area, but also, you know, it allowed me to write about a literary festival. And the great thing about the Hawthorne books is that I am writing about something I know very, very well. Literary fiction, uh, literary festivals, publishers, editors, bookshops, the whole panoply of being a writer. So that's what I'm more interested in, rather than what you're suggesting, which is trying to discomfort or sort of undermine the nature of the whodunit. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely A Line to Kill is such an easy read. And the thing I wanted to ask about your career, touching on, you know, Ian Fleming's James Bond and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes, with a long journey through crime fiction, writing both your own and other people's worlds, what was the most exciting part of getting to create your own crime fiction universe for the first time? Well, first of all, I find all my writing exciting, to me anyway. I think that having spent so many years writing and having written so many books, I've never lost sight of the fact that each book has to be better than the one before and it has to be different from the one before. And in some respects, I've damaged my own career by doing so many different things. You can't pin me down very easily, whether it's Alex Ryder for kids or the Falcons Malteser and South by Southeast Adventures of the Diamond Brothers. My next book is a, is a pastiche of a famous film and it's called Where Seagulls Dare. Uh, and it's the Diamond Brothers, and it's, again, this sort of mad world of children's adventures. Then from that into Holmes and Bond, and now into these new murder mysteries that I'm writing, you know, in a way, I've damaged myself because, because I'm, I can't be so easily pigeonholed. But at the same time, I do think that writing is an adventure and that reading is an adventure and that you should always be challenging yourself and trying to find new things to do and, and, and never being afraid to fail or, to, or, to, or to, to be outside my comfort zone. Now, in terms of what I have discovered with these new books, these metafiction books, Magpie Murders and Moonflower Murders and the Three Hawthorns, 
I have lucked onto an area in which I am very, very comfortable, having been a writer for 60 years. Well, no, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but 50 years, let's say. Um, I do know an awful lot about the world of writing, and I can now use that in the books and actually comment on something which I know about, which is the value of books, the value of reading, the way books are produced, the nature of being a writer. Inspiring, all the stuff, in fact, that I'm asked over and over again at Literary Festival. I'm actually talking to you at the moment from a little place called Appledore on the on the coast of Devonshire in, in the west of England. Uh, and I'm here for a literary festival. So this is what I'll be talking about. It's lovely to be able to write about these things. But for me, where everything begins is trying to do something new. And the moment that my publishers asked me to write a murder mystery series, that was my first and foremost thought, which is I had done Poirot on television. I had done Foyle's War on television. I had done so much murder mystery in my life. How could I do something that had never been done before? And coming up with the idea of putting myself into the book or writing books within books allowed me to, first of all, comment on the world, which I knew so well, but it also meant that I could write whodunits in a brand new way. And that's really the simple answer to why I have done what I've done. Yeah, I guess having written for so many different franchises over the years and writing mystery and trying to do something new, do you feel like there's mandatory homework for you in catching up on all of the mysteries that everyone else has done while you've been looking away and writing other fiction? Well, I've read Golden Age detective fiction all my life. And so I'm sort of fairly, you know, I keep talking about Holmes and um, and and, uh, and Poirot, but of course, you know, I could be talking about Whimsy, I could be talking about Nagayo Marsh or Ruth Rendell or all the other great writers in that world, uh, or who's what Ellery Queen, a great love of mine, who also incidentally turns up as a character in, although Ellery Queen doesn't actually exist as a person, yes, yes. as a writer. It is nonetheless a character and the name on the book. Um, and I'm very, very into Japanese murder mystery. I've been reading an awful lot of books. You mentioned a moment ago, um, and then there were none, but you should read the Decagon House Murders. Oh, which is a we have. We have most definitely read the Decagon House Murders. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Not many people seem to know that in the, in the UK, but it's a fantastic take on Agatha Christie and a comment on the whole world of murder mystery too. It is a, a work of metafiction in itself. Um, so I'm reading a lot of those sorts of books too. By and large, nowadays, I read less because I'm too scared of coming across great clues or great ideas that I wish I had put into my books and which I can't do because I've read them somewhere else. And I'll give you an example of that. Ira Levin in A Kiss Before Dying, a book I like very, very much. It's sort of a, not quite a whodunit. You know who the killer is from the start. But there is an absolutely wonderful clue relating to a, a wedding in the book. And when I read it, I was just annoyed I'd read that book because I might have thought <laughs> that idea and now I can't. Fantastic. Well, Anthony, it has been such a pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader, and I've very much enjoyed getting to read both Magpie Murders and The Line to Kill, and of course now I'm going to have to catch up on everything that's come before it because I stepped in late, my goodness. Uh, but thank you so much for coming here on Death of the Reader. Felix, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Anthony Horowitz there, talking A Line to Kill and Magpie Murders. We will have links up on the podcast if you're curious to find out more about those or get yourself a copy. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. 